focus on what I can control, focus on my effort and focus on my attitude. Those three things are, you know, within your control, whereas everything else isn't. Listen, too many of us spend most of our waking hours working hard for our money and have little time left to figure out how to make our money work hard for us. We default to handing our savings off to advisors who make their livings off our assets while we wait until 65 to enjoy any of the benefits. The problem is we need a quick way to gain the knowledge to take back the reins on managing our money while avoiding the misleading media or just straight bad advice. My goal is to give you all my knowledge, full-time research, and connections in a distilled version so we all can make our money work harder for us. This show focuses on ways you can take back control and intelligently invest outside the stock market to benefit your life today as well as into retirement. I'm Brian O'Neill. And welcome to the Harder Working Money Podcast. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to the Harder Working Money Podcast. We have a great guest on today. It's Mike Roeder from Grant Towers Equity Group. Welcome on, Mike. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me on the show, Brian. Yeah, no problem. So I just want to do a quick backstory on you. And actually, I don't know this answer to this question. So I was curious, what was your corporate job before you went into real estate? So I was a personal lines insurance agent, uh, fell into that because my mother owned a insurance agency uh, in my hometown where I grew up. So I started working for her throughout high school, into college, graduated college, uh, got a job down in Minneapolis as an insurance agent. I quickly progressed to a high net worth insurance agent. Um, so we sold insurance, personal lines, auto, home, umbrella, um, some aircraft, yachts. Uh, to high net worth clients all across the nation. Okay, got it. So you've been in this this sphere of people for a while then. So what yeah. what transitioned you from that career to start to get into real estate and now full-time into real estate? Yeah, great question. So I started out investing in single family rental properties back in 2009. Um, was still going to college. We house hacked our first house, rented out three out of the four bedrooms. It was myself and my girlfriend. She's now been my wife for almost 14 years. Now, but uh, we fell in love with the cash flow. Uh, had buddies living with us. It was a great time. You know, we didn't really have to pay any of the utility bills or the mortgage because the cash flow was paying that. And so we eventually turned that into a full blown rental, purchased a few other single family rental properties. Um, and at that time, it, it really became a second job. You know, I was commuting to downtown Minneapolis, so about an hour commute, hour commute back home. And then I would have to commute another hour to our rental properties to do all the maintenance, to do all the showings, to do the evictions, to do the leasing. And I started suffering a little bit of burnout. And I was like, gosh, I know that real estate is the method that I want to use to create wealth and to create passive income and eventually become financially free. But this isn't the best way to do it. So Dan Breezy, my business partner, he was buying apartment complexes. Uh, he had bought a 24 unit, a nineplex, a duplex. And those properties were working really well for him, but he also had third-party management in place. So he wasn't doing all the day-to-day -day operations like I was. So we ended up going into business together. We bought a 20-unit together. We bought an 8-unit together. Those were going really well. And eventually, we started Granite Towers Equity Group, started scaling our business, syndicating where we're raising money from people that you know, might have a corporate career or might be tied up in their business or might not have the know-how to get into multifamily. So we were able to bring in a lot of people, pool people's money together to buy bigger projects. And then about two years ago, I fully retired from my insurance gig and uh, started doing this full time. 
I didn't know it was, it was two years ago. Okay, that's interesting. So when you compare doing single family on your own and the returns that, let's say, the passive investors get in apartments, which does better, would you say? That's a great question. So, you know, we were buying from 2009 until 2012. So, you know, pretty much the bottom of the market, obviously 2009, 2010, the market was still going down. Um, we had a handful of different single family rental properties. Some of them hit a hundred percent return, you know, over a three to four year period. Uh, there was one where we broke even. So it was kind of a plethora of different results. And really I was just guessing, you know, I didn't know what properties to buy. I didn't know how to properly underwrite. Um, so I feel like I got lucky because we saw a decent amount of appreciation. When I look at, you know, the whole avenue of going single family versus multifamily, I do think that multifamily typically tends to do a lot better because you have the economies of scale, you have a ton of units that you can spread all the risk amongst, you know, if uh, AC unit goes out, if you have to replace a roof, if a tenant moves out, you know, that's spread amongst a hundred units or 200 units, instead of having a single family house where if your tenant moves out, you have a hundred percent vacancy rate. Or if that AC unit goes out and you have to spend $5,000, that's probably your cash flow for a year to two years. So multifamily, I do think, does much better as long as you're investing in the right submarket and you're underwriting properly. Got it. Yeah, and single family still relies on it's only worth what your neighbor's house is worth, where you know you can have great tenants, have improved the property, and it's cash flowing great. They're still going to compare it on the neighborhood and the market. So if the market goes up, your house goes up and it does great, but it really has a lot less to do on the tenants and the operations of how you're doing that to a to a degree. That's what I kind of liked about multifamily was it's a lot more about the business aspect of it, how it's performing financially. I completely agree. I mean, if you think about the single family market, you know, the market dips 25%. You've lost 25% of your value, no matter how much you increase the NOI. Whereas multifamily, sure, the market can dip, but if you increase the NOI substantially, so the net operating income, you can still bring your value up even further than the market has dipped. So it's really in your control. Whereas like you're saying, single family is completely out of your control. So you started in single family, you're doing multifamily. Have you ever considered anything else? Are you guys considering anything right now? As far as, you know, some people I've seen venture off into self storage or triple nets and things like that. What's your guys' current, I know I'm, I'm sure you're still focused on multifamily. Is there anything else that entices your eye? Yeah, great question. So very, very focused on multifamily. You know, we've changed up our metrics on where we invest and how we invest. So we're investing in better areas with, you know, a little bit higher up uh, demographic that can afford the rents, you know, especially with cost of living going up so far. Um, but back to your question, the other avenue that we are entertaining right now is the triple net lease space. Um, and so we're diving into that. We've actually brought on a third partner into our business that specializes in triple net lease properties. He's been doing it for over a decade, has done over 20 projects. Um, his track record is phenomenal. Um, we've actually bought two apartment complexes with him as well. And so, you know, I expect we'll probably do one to two triple net lease properties this year. And the thing I like about that space is you have very, very consistent cash flow from month to month. I mean, it's really mailbox money because the tenant is taking care of all the maintenance and repairs. They're taking care of the taxes. They're taking care of the insurance. So you don't have your expenses, you know, going on a roller coaster ride through ownership. Um, but you need to be very careful on what type of tenant or what type of building you're buying. It has to be a great location 
and you have to make sure that that tenant is very, very financially secure and that that lease is backed by the corporation or backed by, you know, hundreds of stores to really give you comfort getting into that situation. Okay. Yeah. I've obviously been a, a tenant in some triple net, triple net leases, and it is all on the tenant to pay, fix everything, even down to the insurance for the building, uh, most parts of the building and utilities and everything else. Um, from an investor perspective, is that a different investor that would invest in triple net? Are they looking more for cash flow and less appreciation? Because um, obviously triple net has longer leases, so you can't force force the value up as much as you can in multifamily. So is that more like a retired person that just needs a consistent cash flow or what That's a great question. It it really depends on the type of triple net that you're buying. So, you know, if you go out there and you buy a Starbucks where, you know, it has 18 out of the 20 years left on the lease and you're locked into a certain rate, maybe they have a certain increase in the the rental income every 5 years, that's going to be more of a cash flow play, you know, where you're going to get probably 5 to 6%, you know, on your money that you invest every single quarter or every single year. Um, and then you might have a little bit of appreciation if you do hold it longer term. There's also another avenue um, called a blend and extend. So essentially you purchase a triple net lease property towards the end of the lease and you structure it where, you know, maybe you give the tenant some allowance to redo or re-sign the lease at a higher rate. And then you might be able to, to bring the value up significantly. So our third partner that we brought into the business, he's done a lot of that as well where he might take on a, a triple net lease property with six months or 12 months left le on the lease. He negotiates and then he might flip it, you know, 12 months later and see a 60 to 100% return. So all depends on the situation and the property that you're buying. Got it. Yeah, those leases are, my leases were five to 10 years with 3% bumps per year. But when they expire as the tenant and probably as a landlord, like, okay, are we staying? Are we going? How much is the increase gonna be when it renews? But then sometimes the landlords will turn around and they'll do improvements to the building and other things that warrant you staying. So you see that a lot with, you know, centers and triple net spaces that they get a whole refresh. And I'm guessing that's probably an ownership change. They come in and they're at the end of the leases. They improve the property. They try to keep the tenants or put new ones in. So that, that's interesting. Okay. So we'll, we'll get back to uh, your, your main asset class apartments. So why did you pick? Dallas and Nashville as your main areas and why is that important of why you picked those two investors as opposed to something maybe they're familiar with like in their backyard? Yeah, that's a great question. And we actually started out in our backyard. So I'm in Minnesota. Um, it's not a very landlord friendly or business friendly state anymore. Um, but that's what we knew, you know, seven years ago when we started in the multifamily business, we just looked in Minnesota and Western Wisconsin. So that's where we bought our assets. And eventually, you know, through learning, you know, from other investors, learning from our portfolio, um, we determined that, hey, we need to move to markets where there's tons of business growth, tons of population growth, where the market or submarket is landlord friendly. So that way we have all the wins at our sales so we can do better over the longer term. So we eventually moved down to Dallas, Fort Worth, and then into Nashville, both very, very business friendly states no state income tax. They're both very landlord friendly. You're seeing massive population growth in both, both markets, um, which means more tenants. You know, that means that there's a significant higher amount of demand. And we've actually sold pretty much all of our assets up in Minnesota and Wisconsin, other than one asset we still hold in Minnesota. 
Now, that's not to say we wouldn't buy in Minnesota, but it's really got to be a fantastic opportunity because we're seeing the landlord laws become tougher and tougher up here. We're starting to see some rent control and whatnot, and that's really not something we'd like to deal with at this point in time. Got it. So you're looking for growth markets because growth is going to bring more demand. More demand means that you have you have the supply of what people want, but then you're also picking states that aren't going to be like California, where I used to live, that are just so anti-business that I sold my businesses. I couldn't couldn't deal with it anymore. Couldn't deal yeah. with doing business in the states. <laughs> it was just you always went to bed at night wondering what's what's next. What, what's next going to hit you? Exactly. So growth markets allow investors to basically like you said have wind in your sails you're not fighting as many things you're you're riding the wave so you're concentrating in in just two markets how does that benefit you as the operator and then your investors in having a concentrated area i, th I think it's it's probably somewhat obvious that you know the area better but is there anything else that goes on with if you're concentrated in one area i, th I think maybe you know your relationship with brokers or things like that yeah, there's, there's a lot of benefits. Um, and again, we made the mistake of being opportunistic when we first started out in our real estate career where we bought a deal in New Mexico. We bought a deal in Alabama. You know, we had properties up in the Midwest. We, you know, had properties in Texas and Tennessee. And since then, you know, we've really learned that we need to concentrate on a couple of select areas, build out our team, you know, build out the amount of units that we have in those markets. And some of the benefits include, you know, your time. So you want to go and visit these properties frequently. And when you have properties all over the United States, unless you have a very, very robust team where you have asset managers in each market, it's very tough to get to each property on a frequent basis. And that's an absolute must, you know, when you're asset managing and you want to do a good job asset managing. Um, like you said, relationships um, with the brokers, relationships with the property management teams. You know, the more you do with these team members, you know, the more that they're going to give to you or want to give to you as far as service goes, as far as the number of deals that they award to you. So that's helped out substantially as well. And going back to your question on, you know, why we're focusing on, on Dallas and Nashville, another reason why we love major MSAs like that, major markets like that, is you have multiple different property management teams to pull from. You have multiple different contractors, service providers. And so it makes it much easier to complete your business plan and to drive the value of the asset up. Whereas if you're in a tertiary market or you know just a smaller market, a lot of those providers can be tough to find. And even if you find a great one, you, know, you might lose them a couple years down the line and then you're scrambling to find someone new. And when we started out, you know, we invested in St. Cloud, Minnesota, a very small tertiary market in Minnesota, 100,000 people or so. And we ran into the issue where we couldn't find a great management company. And the assets that we had in that submarket suffered because of that. Yeah. And I would think the A players would want to go into the big growth markets. So you're probably going to have just better performing companies that want to go grow their company. I'm not going to go grow it in some small town in Minnesota. I'm going to grow it in Dallas. So if you're a, an, an, a, an A level property manager, you may want to go to a big area and how that benefits investors as well. I was going back to the broker relationship for investors that are new to this. It's not like how the single family, you, you put the property on the market and anyone can sort of bid on it. And, you know, the highest bidder that has the, you know, the, the least conditions gets it. It's a much more relationship driven for sure. So if Mike and his company is, 
heavy in one area. He's buying more properties. They know he can perform. There is definitely a a pecking order and a preference, it seems, to a lot of broker relationships that if you're tighter in one market and you're investing with someone like Mike's company, they may have access to properties and deals that someone who's all spread around the country won't have is what is was an eye-opening to me. It's, it's very, uh, I don't want to say inside baseball, but there definitely is some the PC ways relationships that are formed that determine what, what properties you may have first access to. 100%. Yeah. I mean, it's a hundred percent a relationship business. And right now more than ever, it is so critical that these sellers are choosing buyers that are actually going to follow through and do exactly what they say they're going to do. I mean, Brian, the last five out of eight deals that we've taken a look at have fallen out of contract with someone else. And that is a very painful process. We've had that on the sell side where, you know, we had a 408 unit and they drug us along for seven months and they weren't able to close because they couldn't raise the equity. And we lost value in that project. It's still doing phenomenally well. We'll have a great return. But if we would have chose the right horse, you know, to buy it, we'd have had a much better return. So right now it is so critical to choose the right person. And if you have a great relationship with that broker, you know, you're going to be steps ahead and bounds ahead of the other, you know, individuals that are offering on the property if they don't have that relationship. Yeah. And to investors, that's something you should look into when you talk to syndicators is what the relationship it is, how likely they are to close on deals, how many times they maybe haven't been able to close or raise. So when Mike goes to a broker, a broker approaches him, they know that if he underwrites it and makes an offer, he's very, very likely going to be able to raise the money and close it. And they can go to a seller who may be literally of being drugged down that path of getting to the end and not being able to sell. Maybe they give him a slightly better price or slightly better terms because they know he's going to make it to the end. So that's how, that's how it benefits investors to work with people that are concentrated in in an area and have good relationships. Those relationships aren't because Mike takes them out to dinner. It's because he, he does what he says he's going to do and he, he performs and they, the broker's end job is to make sure they bring buyers and sellers together that can perform and close deals. So that's exactly right. I so that's the behind the scenes things that, why does that matter to an investor? I keep asking that during this interview. It's because you want to make sure that you're investing with someone that is getting the best deal and the relationship is dictated dictated by that with the brokers for sure that's what i've learned 100 percent. yep and you know i think back to when we first got started in the industry for anyone listening here that you know is looking to dive into buying their first property it's it's tough to break in and to break that barrier but if you keep trying and you keep offering on the properties you know the brokers will eventually feel like they need to throw you a bone and you might get your first property and you do exactly what you said you're going to do unless there's something major that comes up you know during the due diligence process and that'll build your reputation that'll build your relationship and eventually you know you they'll be feeding you deals um you know as you go if you build that great reputation Okay, I had to jump in here real quick. I hope you're loving this interview as much as I am. To get all our content and stay up to date, make sure you follow us on social media under Brian underscore O'Neill underscore investor on Facebook and Instagram. And also remember to follow this podcast if you're listening to an audio. And if you're on YouTube watching the video, make sure you subscribe to this channel. Okay, back to the interview. So talking about growth markets, um, obviously everyone that has a TV or the internet realizes that rents have just boomed over the last few years because of covid now they're coming back down to normal realistic levels how much does organic rent growth and that's just rent growth 
basically caused by inflation in the market contribute to investor profits going forward? And like, what's your outlook going forward? Because obviously we're not going to assume we're going to have 15% rent growth. If do you underwrite to zero right now? I mean, how does that, how's that going to affect investors going forward? If we return back to normal rent growth patterns, you still need to maintain the, the returns to investors. How are you doing that? Yeah. Great question. So right now we're underwriting, you know, around 0% year one of ownership. Now that doesn't mean that we aren't increasing the income during year one of ownership. We're typically buying properties where the, the market rent is significantly higher than the property we're purchasing. So we've already proven it out that the competitive properties are charging, you know, maybe 150, 200, $300 more than our property. And it's a similar vintage property, similar amenities, similar upgrades that, that we're looking to do. So that's where our income growth is coming year one. Years two and on, it really depends on the submarket. There's some submarkets where you might see 1% rent growth or one and a half or 2%. There's other markets that are ro more robust and we believe that the rent growth will return to historical norms, you know, in that two to three and a half, four percent range. So in those markets, we might, you know, underwriting to two to to four percent for rent growth. And we use a few different metrics or reports to underwrite properly. So we'll use CoStar, we'll use Yardi. Um, we don't just look at future projections from those reports, but we also look at the historical norms. So what's happened after? over the last 10 to 15 years, what's the average? Because yeah, the next couple of years might be up and down. Um, but if you take the historical average, I feel pretty dang comfortable, you know, if you're at that level or below it. So the way investors make money is obviously we have natural rent growth, which will increase the amount of money coming into the apartment and then flow through to investors. The other way is obviously you're trying to improve the property through CapEx or just for them to CapEx. So it means capital expenditure. Basically, you're you're fixing the place up. So, can you explain to an investor who's totally brand new, but probably a business owner, how spending money on a property will then yield them money in their pocket as an investor? Yep, great question. So, first off, interior unit renovations. So, if you're upgrading the interior of the unit, if you're putting in new flooring, new appliances, new cabinets, new countertops, you should be able to charge a higher amount for that upgraded unit compared to a classic unit. Now, you need to do your homework. You need to go out and visit or have someone on your team visit the competitive properties to make sure that that's already being achieved in the market. If it's not, I wouldn't. I wouldn't risk that because you don't know if you can achieve that. So make sure that there's multiple competitive properties that are already doing it. So that's a great way to spend dollars on the asset and drive the income up. You can also do other value add projects like water conservation. If you have a all bills paid property where the landlord yourself, when you're owning the property, you pay all the utilities, you know, and maybe there's a bunch of old toilets and old shower heads, you might be able to save you know, $30,000 or $100,000 a year off of your water bill by installing all new fix water fixtures, maybe installing LED lighting throughout the property. Maybe you put in some new amenities so your property is more attractive than what it was like before. So there's all kinds of different value add strategies that you can put into place to really increase the NOI, which drives the value up on the property. Is there a certain metric you look at? So like I heard from a, another mentor that they try to use a three-year number on things. So if I was going to build carports, could in three years, I cover the cost of that carport cost of constructing it with the additional payments coming in. And then basically it's paid for itself. And now moving forward, it it's producing positive cash flow, which 
when you go to sell it, you get a multiple on. Do you guys look at it that way? Or you just look at it simply from the NOI increase when you sell? Yeah, we strictly look at the NOI increase. So, you know, what's the reversion cap rate that we're using? You know, that means the cap rate at sale. And what's going to be the increase of the NOI over the period of time where we're implementing that business plan? And if it's significantly higher than what we're sticking in to the project, you know, then we're all for it. So, you know, let's say we're upgrading a unit and we're sticking in $10,000 and we believe that we're going to be able to increase the value by, you know, maybe $50,000. I mean, that's a, that's a great value add play right there. Now, if we're increasing the, the value of the property by $15,000 and we're sticking in 10, you know, we might second guess that and, and probably stick the dollars elsewhere. And I'm always told never do math live. So I'm going to try not to do math live here, but to people that to, to explain that in a, even in a more watered down version for every dollar that you can increase basically positive cash flow that comes out of this business when you go to sell it that dollar gets divided by what's called the cap rate basically so if you have a, a dollar and you divide it by a five percent cap rate is twenty dollars did i do the math right yep exactly so if so, you increase your if you increase your income by or your noi by ten thousand dollars and properties are selling for a five cap, you know, you probably increase the value of the property by about $200,000. So that's where it comes into play that you can spend these larger numbers improving the property. Maybe you didn't make your money back completely over the five year period. When you go to sell it, it has such a huge increase because of that dividing by your cap rate of 5%, like Mike said, that's where your, your, your big kick on profit to investors, basically. Yeah, that's forced appreciation. And it's a beautiful thing. You know, again, back to the single family properties, you're not able to do that. Whereas multifamily, you know, industrial office, um, any type of commercial property, you should be able to force appreciation if, if you do a good job. Do you have any tips to investors that are investing passively right now in 2023 that they should be doing to be successful when traversing this market? I mean, there's there's rescue capital funds right now that are asking for money. There's other people that are still buying properties. There are some people sitting on the sidelines. Do you have anything that you would tell a passive investor? Yeah, I think first off, you know, vet the sponsorship team heavily. So make sure that you know, like, and trust the person that you're investing with. Because, you know, I've looked at all the passive deals that I've done, all of our deals. You know, it's really the driver in the driver's seat that's going to create the success of the project. So yes, you need to be in a good location. The asset has to be a good solid asset, but the most important piece is who is the team that's going in and that's going to actually put together the business plan, implement the business plan, keep the synergy with you know the on-site team. So that's critically important. So I would say that's number one. Number two, be picky. You know, right now, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities coming out over the next, you know, six to 18 months where there's distressed properties that you're going to see, you know, 15 to 30% discount. So be picky about where you're investing your dollars, especially if you have, you know, one or two investments that you can make over the next year. Just, just make sure you feel comfortable. And if there's a red flag, just wait for the next one. And then the third thing would be, you know, try to pick a really good market. If you're a little bit hesitant on the market, whether it's a tertiary market or not a landlord friendly, you know, state or city, again, that would be a red flag. And I would just be picky and, and probably pass and wait until you see a great opportunity. Got it. That's good advice. I just want to flip back real quick to property management. Some syndicators have that in-house and some don't. You don't. What's the positives and negatives to not having it in-house and why did you choose that direction? Yep. So 
it may be something that we do five or 10 years down the road. At this point, we're unsure on what we want to do. Um, right now, some of the benefits of having your own property management company, so being vertically integrated, would be that you have total control. So you can make adjustments and those adjustments can be made quickly. You can see, you know, possibly quicker results. But we've seen great, great uh, success with using third-party management. Now you need to be careful on who you're selecting. So make sure to do your due diligence on the management team that you're hiring. And you need to make sure that you're staying on top of them and that you're properly asset managing. But we've seen a lot of success with third party. Now, I think the major downfall of being vertically integrated and having your own management company is if something goes awry. So let's say you're having major problems with the management company, your own management company, it's kind of tough to fire yourself. <laughs> Whereas a third party management company, you can fire them and you can move on to the next best option. So it's an easy transition. I think for us, if we do start our own management company, we would likely buy a third party management company that's been in play for five to 10 years that has that experience that's profitable. So we can step in, we can implement our own procedures, our own processes, but already have the team built, the systems built, the processes built. Because if you look at any business, you know, the failure rate in the first five years is very, very high. And that's going to apply to your property management team if you start one as well. So if you can purchase one, you're likely going to have, you know, a much higher chance of success. Yeah. When I first looked into apartments and syndication, I was surprised that people weren't, you know, on site managing their own properties. And I started to think about it and it comes down to special specialization in my mind. There's a lot of a lot of pieces, moving pieces in the asset management and raising money and finding the deals and managing, you know, the relationships with the banks and all that stuff to then go and also have to deal with down to the maintenance guy that's fixing the toilets. That's a, a very broad focus to specialize in. So even though you are giving up a few percent to the property management company, like you said, you have your choice in these big markets of numerous property managers that are all trying to specialize in this, you can pick the best one that's, that's, you know, come to the top of the pool basically. And it does seem like as syndicators get bigger and bigger, sometimes they just buy one instead of trying to build it from scratch. That seems interesting. Yeah. I actually went to dinner with uh, an investor, a syndicator that started his own management company about two years ago. And I was just talking to him about how it's going and it's been very, very stressful you know, it's taking a significant amount of his time, you know, and that's been over a two year period. Now it's getting better, but it's, it's a big task to start a management company. Like you said, you're dealing with hundreds of employees, you're dealing with building systems. Um, so you need to make sure that you have the right person that's heading that division of your company. If you're going to do that again, it can be very beneficial, but it needs to be done right. And a whole different type of employee too. Like the type of employee you have in your asset management company will be a white collar number crunching data analyst type type person or a, a you know upper end manager and property management will be more like my restaurant business where you know it's a day-to-day -day, they they quit they don't show up you know it's just a, a different type of management structure as well so you definitely have to wear two hats if you want to try to manage both those so the fact that you don't have these people as direct employees how do you manage that relationship because you've sort of handed off the the management day-to-day -day stuff to another company. Do you only interact with the top people at your management company or do the person that answers the phone, do they know who you are and do you interact with them or how, how do you draw that distinction? Cause they're not technically your direct employee. 
That is a really, really good question, Brian. So you're going to see that different syndication companies have different relationships with the on-site manager, with the leasing agent, with the regional manager. Um, at our company, we want to make sure that we have a relationship with everyone. So what we'll typically require is that we have a weekly management call and we have the regional on the call. And then we also make sure that the on-site manager, so the, basically the, the main manager on-site at the property is on the call as well. So that way we're getting primary data when we have those weekly management calls. Now, there's a lot of management companies out there that won't allow the on-site manager to be on the call. They want that disconnect. They want there to be kind of a layer in between the management company and the owners. I don't agree with that. I think I think you need to get that primary data and you need to have a relationship with them. We also go out to the property, we'll bring gifts, we'll you know communicate with all of the on-site employees and just make sure that they know that we appreciate them. And that also that we're in tune with the asset and we wanna make sure that they're doing a great job and they're doing a great job for the residents. So. I think that's critically important. A couple other tips, we always make sure that we install cameras on the bulk of our properties so that way we can pull the um, recording up right on our phone and we can see how the grounds look, how the garbage you know containers look, are they overflowing, are the staff getting there on time. So we're not really micromanaging, but it's just nice to have that additional tool, especially if you're not getting to that asset you know, on a weekly basis. That's interesting. The cameras. I know my, my businesses, I've had cameras as well. And you, you can look at them just in 30 seconds. I can look at the cameras. I can know what's going on. doesn't mean I do anything. I just, oh, that's interesting. Or, oh, okay, I can see what's going on here. I would just have to try to not jump on the phone and call about something because, you know, people are thinking you're, you're the eye in the sky. Yep. But when you can see the a whole property or a whole business in on one screen, you really can see how things are flowing. Just how people are moving. You can see if they're stressed or if things are going well, or, you know, some guy's sitting over in the corner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. He's supposed to be working. Um, but yeah, it's funny. Okay. So to just wrap this up, I always ask people this at my end of the interviews and I'll ask to you as well. Cause I see you have the big ass calendar, um, Jesse Hitler's calendar in the background. Is there anything this year or last year that is sort of your, your one year goal personally, as far as mindset, or just improving yourself because you're a successful business person. So I like to ask successful business people sort of like, what are you working on right now as far as personally? Yeah, great question. So, so a goal last year was really to, to focus on what I can control, focus on my effort and focus on my attitude. Those three things are, you know, within your control. Um, whereas everything else isn't. And I used to get, you know, stressed out if you had an issue at a property or, you know, an issue, um, just personally, you know, it gets stressed out. Whereas I feel like I'm able to let go of those items much quicker now. Um, so that's been a huge goal of mine that I've been able to implement and being able to see some really good results. Um, this year, as far as goals with mindset, um, you know, focusing on meditation each day, focusing on doing family goals on a regular basis. That's really important to us. We have an 11 year old daughter and a seven year old daughter. And so, you know, getting them to really focus on goals and then implement action items to hit those goals has been so much fun. Um, and it's been, we've seen some tremendous progress there as well. Um, other goals, you know, I would say um, just making sure that we're running our operations very good, training our employees very, very well. And then uh, unit count as well. We'd like to be at 10,000 units in about five years from now, um, but we want to grow at the proper pace. Right now we have about 2,500 units. 
and then also to jump into the triple net lease space. So it's a little bit about what we have coming down the pipeline. That's awesome, Mike. Well, we appreciate your time and you're definitely uh, an operator that has in the, the few few years here that year and a half that I've been sort of starting to uh, circle in the multifamily arena. Your guys' name keeps coming up and it's not an endorsement, but I have invested with Mike's company because um, they did seem to be one of the, the top players who just honest people that had their had their ducks in a row and took the plunge and did an initial investment with them to see how things go. And so far, they've met all expectations that people say they meet. They uh, basic, basic things that you think would be common. And I've invested with some big players and with Mike, who's, I would say, maybe a medium size. And the big guys send me one poorly put together email that looks like a fourth grader did it with two pictures showing the status of the property. And obviously Mike's company has a much more professional approach to it. So thank you so if much. They wanna, if they, no problem. If they want to check out you more, obviously you have a, a podcast and a website and things like that. You want to share that? We'll put that in the show notes as well. Yeah, definitely. So if you go to granitetowersequitygroup.com, uh, you can go and fill out our contact us form. That'll get you on our database. We'll also send you out an email so that we can get onto a personal call to get to know each other a little bit. And then on our website, we have our podcast. We also have a free ebook on passive investing. So it has some really good, valuable information on how to vet a team, how to vet a market, how to vet an actual deal, and then how to vet the actual team that's running the property behind the scenes. Um, so make sure to take take a look at that as well. Um, and Brian, thank you so much for having me on the show today. I appreciate it. No problem, Mike. It's good seeing you. I'll see you again soon. And thanks for coming on. You bet.